Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back to Recovery, sort of. As always, this is Jason. I'm a guy in long-term recovery, and I am here with... Billy. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. And today we have a a wonderful special guest named Daniel. Hey, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a former heroin addict, so great to be on the show and talk with you. I was curious how you were going to introduce yourself there. I know not everybody believes in uh, either recovery or recovered or, or, or any of that specific language. It's interesting how everybody's got their own way, so... I'm sure I'll change it at some point too. I'm not locked into that. Like whatever. Yeah. It's all good. That's funny. We always tend to say uh, between Billy and I, that like whatever it is we believe now, just give us five years and we'll probably tell you some other shit. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. And so Daniel's here today. He's going to, he's from smart recovery. uh, And you know, while no one person should ever represent a recovery modality, we are going to put him on the spot and ask him to anyway. Um, Just sounds good. (laughs) Sounds good. Um, And so the best thing we've heard, while we do have a a ton of questions to learn more about Spartan Recovery, I think the best thing we've learned is that it's always good to just kind of start with, why don't you tell me about Smart Recovery before we ask questions? Right. No, good good place to start. So um, Smart basically... Stand, well, I'll tell you what it stands for, self-management and recovery training. And the essence of SMART is that they see uh, reco- addiction as a learned behavior. Uh, they are based primarily on cognitive behavioral therapy. So their focus is primarily just like let's, let's center in on ideas and techniques that can help you change from a self-destructive life, one that you're probably uh, unhappy in, to one that is constructive and satisfying. And a real a key takeaway or a key thing that most people notice and discover right at the beginning of their uh, smart journey is that they, we don't focus on labels or use labels like addict or alcoholic. We in, actually encourage people uh, to not use those kinds of labels. And SMART's principles are entirely based on scientifically validated methods, which are really designed to empower you. So we're, we're all about uh, self-empowerment and developing a more positive lifestyle, whatever that may look like for you. And so if you don't mind, uh, you want to tell us just a, a shortened version of your story. I believe you told us that, you know, it kind of your story is a little relevant for why smart seems like the better choice for you. Yeah, let's see if I can do a condensed version that kind of <laughs> everyone, everyone says that, right? Like, it's like, okay, give us the life story in five minutes, please. Yes. <laughs> um, so I was actually raised in a fairly conservative Christian family. 
And so my, my upbringing was, uh, I would consider it fairly sheltered. Um, I was not exposed to things like substance use or a lot of alcohol uh, consumption or anything like that. It was um, maybe a little on the extreme side in terms of the, the sheltering and the, the fundamental kind of moral focus that I, that I grew up with. And uh, in my late teens, as a result of some really, what, what I would later reflect on as being traumatic experiences, uh, some things that happened both within my family and also within the, um, the church that I was a part of, I kind of just said, there seems to be something foundationally wrong here with the way I understand the world, the way I understand God as, uh, as he was taught to me as a, as a young person. And, uh, with my entire belief structure as it's, as it's built, because it seems to me, at least that the people, the adults, the ones I trusted, the authority figures that were presenting the truth of the world to me, um, were hypocrites and were misleading me and were not, really telling me the the honest truth now were they really i mean or how much of that is the the youthful mind not really able to understand reality in the world and i'm growing and learning but in any case my reaction was very um very intense it was kind of like i'm turning my back completely on this way of life uh the the moral sheltering that i grew up under i'm gonna push back against that so like let's the sky's the limit. Let's explore. And uh, I basically went from being uh, a sober individual who had never used or experimented with any drugs or alcohol to clubbing and using smoking weed and drinking uh, every every day within a matter of a couple of weeks to a month. Like it was a very rapid transition. And uh, one of the things that I, I look back on in in um, kind of retrospect, I understand that one of the things that I interpreted about the way uh, God existed in the world uh, was that he was there to make you feel good. That was my understanding as a young person. When, you, when you're feeling bad, when, life's, when you're depressed, when life's not going well, you pray to God and he will make you feel better. That's a very fundamental kind of immature, childish understanding uh, of the spirit world, I suppose. But it actually had the counterproductive effect of priming me for, for substance use, I think. I think that, in a sense, I understood God like he was a drug, right? You take a drug to feel better. You, take, uh, you can use God to feel better about your life. Like, I really had no good foundation for understanding greater spiritual truths or understanding the faith of the Bible as it was taught to me. It was very elementary school. And uh, as a young person, I think... It, most people that grow up in a in a religious framework, they do go through some sort of crisis of faith at some point in time. Like you can only ride your parents' belief system for so long, and then you really do have to develop your own, right? So maybe maybe part of that journey was a necessary part in order to come to my own understanding of faith. But as a result, um, in in my early years in addiction, when I was first introduced to the 12 steps, the spiritual components of uh, the 12 steps were something I was highly resistant to because I obviously had arrived at a place in my life where I was like, I don't I don't want God to be a part of the solution for me. I really was like, no, 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 uh, I can figure this out on my own. Like I, I felt that I screwed my life up. And so I needed to take 
responsibility for it myself and then kind of find my own way out of that. And then I was, I mean, you meet all types. I, I have only my experience to go by in terms of my, my experience with NA and AA and the 12 steps. Like I can't compare the meetings that I attended to, to ones that take place anywhere else in the world. But some of these early experiences, I met people that had very strange uh, spiritual beliefs that, and their higher power, their concept of a higher power was so foreign to me or so illogical, really, like, because I'm a very analytical, logically, that's how my mind works. Like, even though I do still have a, I have a faith today, and it's, it's based in my own journey that I came to uh, from moving away from what my, my parents taught me in kind of a fundamental framework. Um, the, the illogical version of spirituality that I saw certain individuals presenting about their, what their concept of a higher power was to me, it was like, this is just ass backwards. Like this makes no sense. How can, how can the bottle of beer that you don't drink in your fridge be your higher power? Like that was one, that was one story that I remember hearing at a young, you know, early twenties, impressionable age where these people are my example for recovery. And this is kind of from the front of the room, what they're hearing. So I was, maybe I had some really early bad experiences, but for whatever reason, it kind of primed me with a distaste for the 12 steps, which was very hard to shake. And then a couple other things that just did not resonate with me based on my personality. Like I really believe recovery is a lot about personality and that as we grow, we can, we have more opportunity to become self-aware and get to know ourselves, get to know how we work. Um, I highly encourage people to do personality tests, to do things like the strengths finder and the big five, like the ocean personality profile and Myers-Briggs and no one of those uh, personality profiles tells you who you are like that's not what their intention is but they do reveal things about you that are valuable and so as I I I got older I was able to figure out more about my personality and realize oh this is a reason smart recovery and cognitive behavioral therapy clicks for me and why NA and the 12 steps didn't really click for me it's some of it is my my analytical mind my my thirst for knowledge, my need for scientific evidence to be underneath um, what I believe. And so, so that makes it a challenge for the faith element, right? We can't put science underneath all of that all the time. And that's a, a bit of a learning curve. And it's a wrestling match. Like I'm literally wrestling with that all the time still in my, in my day-to-day life. But I remember hearing um, people introducing themselves as, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm an addict. Uh, and hearing that saying, that kind of cliche, the once an addict, always an addict. And I think maybe I didn't really understand it in my youth, but seeing people that were five or 10 or 20 years sober and still at these meetings calling themselves an addict an addict didn't make sense to me. That's mm-hmm. really what it came down to. It was like, wait, wait, I thought you're sober for like 10 years. You don't use drugs anymore. You don't like... Um, have that as a part of your lifestyle. Like, how are you still an addict? That was the reasoning that was going on in my mind. Now I can look at it 
in a different perspective. Now I can see this is a person who was probably felt empowered by that label. They probably were attempting to stay, uh, prevent themselves from becoming complacent and to stay motivated in their recovery journey. They didn't want to forget how, how dark and bad it was. So it, that label in a sense is, a, is something that can keep them grounded in, in preventing them from going back, right? But for me, it felt like a, a hopeless thing. For me, it was like, oh, this is like, I had no framework for addiction yet. I'm 21 and I loved using drugs and they were a lot of fun and partying was great, but problems are developing and relationships are being affected and it's affecting my work. So it seems that I can't totally walk this, you know, drugs every day and booze every day and a functional life very effectively, right? And so I was coming to that realization part of it part of it i came to in the back of a police car but uh like 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 you do right uh but you know and then i hear i'm hearing that oh if you if you step out of denial and admit that the, what's really going on for you is an addiction you will have to carry this label around with you for the rest of your life mm. and to me that was such a hopeless uh idea that i was just Immediately from day one, I was like resistant to that. I'm like, I'm not taking this label on. And so part of that was denial, I think. And there was an element of that, which um, I had people around me like, you know, no, you need to come to terms with your behavior. Like you are a drug addict. You can't deny that. And it's like, okay, yes, that is true. Uh, I do see how my behavior is, is classic drug addicted behavior i can't deny that but at the same time i see this label as being a harmful thing that's not inspiring hope for my journey or for my future so it was a real real wrestling match and that was kind of sorry a very long answer to your your question (laughs) but that's a little bit of my personality and i think why i was primed for finding something that was an alternative to the 12 steps it's interesting i think there's definitely been times in my recovery where i've heard about people who had problems with 12-step fundamental issues with you know whether it was we called ourselves addicts forever or maybe they just had a a really terrible experience early on with somebody in their version of a higher power and i I, look i know there's been times in my recovery where i've kind of judged that idea and been like well you just need to get the fuck over it and and you know get on (laughs) with life and and learn recovery obviously uh but I, i i'm almost wondering now the more I learn about these other modalities, it's like, you know what? Maybe you could have got over that and you could have worked a 12 step program and maybe that would have worked possibly mm-hmm. who the fuck knows. Right. Mm-hmm. But the awesome thing is it's great that there's these other places that you can have a resentment against NA and go to these other places and still find help. Like, yeah. isn't that better? Like, why would I judge that? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think we need to have like recovery is a journey and anyone that's, that's, struggled with an addiction and then finds themselves kind of on the recovery road uh, knows this, right? It's not a straight line. There is a lot of up and downs. You know, I think our families are all like, Oh, it's a a relief. He finally went to treatment. Everything's going to be great now. Right. Right. (laughs) And and obviously it's just, it's not that way. I mean, I can't even count how many detoxes I went to or how how many times I was in treatment centers and things like that. So it's a, it's a journey. And one of the ways I look at that journey actually for myself is like this really volatile stock. You know, if you take a look at a stock that's super volatile, it's up and down uh, on any given, the U S dollar is a good example (laughs) 
for uh, on any given day, you never know what direction it's going to go a little bit, right? But if you zoom way out and look at the last 30 years, that even though there's a lot of ups and downs in it, it's been trending up the whole time. And so that's kind of how I see my recovery journey too, is like, I had a lot of ups and downs. I had a lot of lapses. I, I really felt, uh, I almost say that my recovery was defined by relapse for a long period of time because I just had so many. And um, yet if I look back at it now, removed from it and, and out of it, I can see that even in those really those, those low points and when you bottom out and you relapse, I was trending in one direction. And that trend re line really started to go way up when I learned to look at relapses as a learning experience, as opposed to just a failure. Mm. Uh, and that was something that smart really helped me with because again, just through the way my mind operates and the way I interpreted the, the NA modality, like I, I suffered, I think most people in addiction can relate to feelings of shame and, and guilt. Right. And yes. like, that's, that's super common. So, uh, and mitigate like guilt is valuable. It's, it's not a bad thing. We don't, we shouldn't be running away from our guilt, but shame is harmful. And shame is something that we don't want to encourage uh, and that we, we really want people to begin to see their value and to not wallow and live in shame. And for me, just the, I had so much overwhelming shame as a result of my behavior because I did not like the life I was living. I was not happy with the direction it was going in. I did not feel I was living up to the potential that was within me, that when a lapse or, uh, happened, the idea of needing to get that just for today, FOB, again, was so, it so compounded the shame that I felt about myself as a, as a failure, because that's, that was my belief structure, right? I believed I was a failure, that I just couldn't bring myself to, to go to that point because it felt like a restart. It felt like day one, in a sense it is, it's day one, but NA really kind of emphasizes like you're at day one. I mean, there I felt there was an overemphasis on counting days sober and a lack of emphasis on what is the quality of your life. Like if someone's had 10 years of sobriety and their life is amazing, They've got family and children and a successful successful career. And then for whatever reason, something goes sideways and they have a lapse. Maybe that last, lasts a day or a week or even a month, but they pull themselves out of it. That 10 years of recovery is not a write-off. And, you know, perhaps they stopped themselves from going too far and they got back on track. And we need to find a way to, for them to learn from that experience and, and identify the things that went wrong that led up to that, because it probably wasn't a one second decision. It probably wasn't a bad day that uh, just they decided to use drugs all of a sudden. I think it was probably a culmination of things. Studies show that most relapses are like two or three months in the working uh, before they culminate in actually picking up the substance. So, you know, SMART really emphasizes learning experience. Like, what can you learn from this? and what went on why did you relapse and we i really want to focus in on that for individuals so that we can just get away from the whole shame story and the, the narrative around shame and whether i don't think that's an intentional creation of na like i don't think they intentionally are like we gotta make people feel as shameful as possible about the behavior i just think it's an, a side effect that is perhaps just inherent 
to some extent in the way that that is that system is created with around the fobs and the celebration of of sobriety sobriety is a thing to celebrate for sure and like you know i just never put it up here on my value list in terms of like needing to count my days i i don't i don't even know precisely right now like it's not something that is the most meaningful thing to me for some people it is so again i'm always qualifying my statements because i don't want to offend people and say my way is better it's not what i mean it by any 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 means right i'm just saying like again this was how my brain processed this stuff and so i'm a unique person Uh, we got to help unique individuals find their unique path right yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. We're gonna offend people along the way. I'm with you. I, I try not to offend people too, but I, I know I do. A um, couple of interesting points in there. Just the the shame thing and the celebrating sobriety and and how important is that versus how good my life is on a daily basis. Like which one holds the importance and the relevance? I think all that's super relevant for my life and things that I think about. Um, I know I think one of the only times I think clean time does come into play in my head is when I'm trying to like when I have an argument with somebody who has less and my ego is trying to use it to, <laughs> to prove me right. It's like, oh, he's only got three years over there. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That is actually a really uh, key point because I, I felt like we do emphasize uh, it's like we offer a little more credibility to to people based on how, how long they've been sober. And right. so. Um, you guys didn't ask, but if you had asked me, uh, I wouldn't have answered you. And, <laughs> and I actually, I actually do that intentionally. It's just a decision I made uh, along the way because I really don't want to. I I don't want people who were like myself to feel shame for having less days sober. Mm. I just like if you've only got one day, if you're just starting, like you're still you're you're still valuable. And your life has tremendous meaning and value and it's fine. Like, and, and what you have to offer and the, the knowledge and the wisdom you have isn't any less than someone who has five or 10 years sober necessarily. Right. Right. Like it it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have something to offer yet. And so I I just was like, I just decided, you know, I'm in long-term recovery. It's been a while and I don't, I don't need to like, broadcast that because i don't want to make anyone feel like they're they're not valuable for where they're at in their journey that's super interesting so i don't if somebody asked i will definitely like tell them how long i've been in recovery or clean or whatever you'd like to call it but i generally don't ever say it when i share about it either Uh, Mm. and it's a different reason for me it's just more of a humility thing it's like it's really not that relevant. Like, how am I living today? Because I can right. have whatever amount of clean time and go home and fucking smack my kid across the mouth and be a huge jerk. And I'm like, that's really useless to have clean time for that. Like, that's not how yeah. I live. Yeah. Are you in improving your life? Uh, like, is your who you are as a person improving on a day to day basis? And those things are far more important than uh, the number of days you've had sober, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. You also you kind of made. <laughs> You made uh, smart recovery sound like planet the planet fitness of recovery modalities to me, <laughs> with like the judgment free zone or something. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure that it's uh, that in writing it's perfect in that sense. But, I mean, it is facilitated by human beings, so right. uh, I'm quite certain that we don't escape all uh, critical uh, attitudes and judgments. Um, smart is a lunk alarm. Yeah. <laughs> We do make a strong effort to to just 
accept people where they're at. And um, SMART's primary focus is on abstinence, but they're willing to encourage, uh, bring people along that aren't there yet. So they will mm-hmm. take a harm reduction uh, approach to things. Um, they will encourage. Now, if you're coming to a meeting and you're not sober, that's going to be a problem. We're, we're going to, we're not going to be like going down that road, but we are, you know, plenty of people are navigating their recovery journey. Some people who are feeling like maybe they want to, uh, reduce the harms of their harder drug use. And they're, they're going to just smoke some cannabis on occasion and they'd still be welcome. I mean, I think they'd still be welcome in, in a 12-step meeting, too. It's not like you would tell them to leave. But um, we, because we don't have the entire system or any, any emphasis around counting days sober or celebrating that or handing out fobs, it's just not part of the, the, the meetings. It's just not part of the space, right? Like, so people do talk about that. They do have conversations about their, their sobriety. People, I've met people that have come that were drinking a lot and they just want to reduce as opposed to being completely absent. I mean, that was, that was me for a time. I really, really tried hard to be a rec, uh, a social responsible drinker. Like I really wanted to be. And then through about a period of eight years of attempting that, and I realized it was not working out <laughs> multiple times. I was like, okay, I give up. I'm not going to, I can't drink. It just, it doesn't work for me. Right. But some people need to go off that need to go on that journey. They need to figure that out. Right. So let's have grace for them in the process. Like if they haven't come to a place of accepting that abstinence is what they need for them, then, then that's okay. Maybe they will get there. Maybe they'll, maybe we can, you know, have some compassion in the process. Right. Super interesting. Uh, just to, to check off some of these as you're answering them, you, you did say what uh, SMART says that addiction is, which is a learned behavior. And I would say, I guess, a learned behavior with a negative consequence? Or, or how Oh, that- yeah, clearly. Like, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> substances are useful. I think that's, that's something that, that we can acknowledge addictive behaviors serve a purpose um they will help people cope with life problems and you know emotional difficulties and whatnot but uh uh, clearly for anyone that's been using substances for for a while and they're developing problems like it's there's there's negative consequences right and i think um i think the uh, the focus really needs to be on helping an individual find out what's underneath the substance use so what what kind of pain and things in life were they were the substances helping them with? Uh, right. Like let's be honest about the, about it. It wasn't at some point it went away from just being a party and being fun to serving a purpose that dealt with a pain and trauma and emotional upsets in some way. And we need to identify what those things are. So you need to acknowledge that it it served a purpose. So when we say learned behavior, uh, Smart doesn't really take a position on disease theory. Um, they're, they're open, like people can subscribe to disease theory or not. There's a lot of like in the work I do, uh, there's a lot of opinions on addiction theory. Um, I mean, disease theory obviously stands out as kind of the definitive, the de facto it's in the DSM five right now, basically like addiction as a disease. Um, when we use the terminology learned behavior, the emphasis I think in smart is on personal responsibility. So 
if I can give you an analogy about choice, because the word choice comes into the addiction quite often, like people talk about addiction, is it a choice? Uh, and then people who have been in addiction will often say, well, obviously it's not a choice. You didn't choose to be addicted. It's not a choice. I think it's, it's really hard to use a simple word like choice to explain a complicated idea like addiction. And the right. best analogy that I've heard is to look at a tug of war for, for an individual that is in addiction as if they're in a tug of war and you have one side that's pulling them into their addiction to stay in it, to, to stay addicted. And those things that are pulling them in that direction might include their, their childhood trauma, the difficult circumstances of their life, the destroyed relationships and burned bridges that they're in, the fact that they're actually physically and, pro and psychologically dependent on a drug so they don't want to go into withdrawal all those kinds of things their financial situation are pulling them to stay right it's it's tough it's easier to just escape and and get out of this by uh these feelings by numbing out and disconnecting right and the other side of the tug of war is the things that are pulling that individual to a better life so uh, the hope that they have for their future, the people that see potential within them, the family and loved ones that support and surround them and are encouraging them and, and trying to give them uh, give them hope and support them in the process. And so is there a choice in this? Uh, yes, I think there is. But for many, and for myself too, for many years in addiction, this side was just pulling. It was It was loaded, right? There's 10, 10 big strong guys pulling this way and there wasn't much pulling me pulling this way at all. So uh, we need to load up on supports for individuals. We need to uh, get more, give them more hope. We need to not be condemning and shaming them. We need to have compassion and empathy for where they're at. We need to be able to connect them with healthy support systems and models of, of recovery that work for them and that they resonate with. So that's kind of the way I see addiction working in an individual. Um, that choice plays a role, but uh, it's not that reductive. Yeah, I personally avoid the uh, the conversation about whether it's a disease or not at all costs. <laughs> Mostly because, honestly, at this point, like the most beneficial thing that came out of the disease model is the fact that insurance covers it. And if we ever lose that, I don't. I don't. What the fuck are we going to do then? Right. So, like, yeah. let's just even, let's just act like we don't care. <laughs> well, a hundred years ago, I mean, we we operated strictly on the moral model. So, if you're addicted, you are a reprobate sinner who needs to repent. You are bad. Drugs are bad. You need to stop using drugs. And so, we've come a long way yeah. uh, from there, obviously. And I think the disease model is a necessary part of our evolution and the understanding the way we, as a society, understand addiction. Because of one of the key points you mentioned, it has allowed us to acknowledge addiction as a health issue. Yeah. Rather than a moral failing, rather than, you know, you're just weak-willed, rather than just, oh, it's just the drugs, you just got to stop the drugs, uh, like as if the drugs are what caused the addiction. Uh, we've moved into, you know, understanding this is a health issue, we need health supports for these individuals. And we really need to take that a step further in our society, because while we're treating as a health issue, we're also still criminalizing people for their yeah. addictions. And that's yeah. a real problem because that further disconnects them from the support system that might actually help them break free. Yes, absolutely. Uh, try to get us back to, to smart. I know I, I was <laughs> conversation so much yeah. I get off topic. Uh, are there any qualifications for membership in smart? None at all. Nope. No qualifications for, for membership. Smart doesn't really have a membership. 
uh, in the sense of like the people that attend meetings, there's no formal requirements to, to come, um, or we don't collect names, phone numbers. We do it as anonymously as possible. We don't even need people to use their real names when they attend meetings. Uh, so yeah, no membership. There is some training for facilitators, of course. Uh, and so that's a bit of a different story, but, uh, anyone could become a facilitator if they wanted to, and they can get onto smartrecovery.org and find out what that process looks like. Right. Awesome. Um, what about like, what about somebody who necessarily, maybe they, they never used a drug like, and then they just show up at your meeting is, is, can they benefit from it? Or are they allowed to stay? Like, yeah, I, they can stay, and it does happen, uh, mostly in the context of family supporting an individual. So we'll often have a young person come with a mom or a dad, or a loved, a loved one come with like a spouse, and they just, they don't understand addiction, um, but they want to support their, their loved one. And so they'll participate by all means. Um, there's also like SMART acknowledges behavior and process addictions too, uh, as equally as potentially destructive. So people may not be dealing with substance use disorders. They may be dealing with gambling or sex addiction or shopping or um, any, any kind of process addiction, you know, Netflix and chill too much. <laughs> uh, so, you know, people need to, uh, are welcome by all means. Yeah. Excellent. So this is kind of a, a loaded question that I, I don't think could even be answered for our fellowship, honestly. Uh, what does recovery look like? like <laughs> how does that look? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, all I can comment on is my recovery, I suppose, okay. right? Because I think SMART focuses on helping individuals find out what would give them a meaningful and satisfying life. So for each person, you're going to have to identify what that is for you. And I really do believe as a, that you can't sustain recovery without some sense of meaning and purpose. Um, for me, doing this kind of work, like advocacy and recovery work, facilitating meetings, um, speaking and sharing my story, that those kinds of things actually are part of the meaning and purpose of, of my life. And they're part of my recovery, really. Like it, facilitating meetings is highly therapeutic for me. Um, I don't sit up like smart facilitators don't sit on a platform or we, we generally do all our meetings in a circle. So, you know, there's no uh, obvious hierarchy facilitators as a facilitator. I try to just say I'm at the same level as, as everyone in the room. Like I'm not other than the fact that I took the training. So I know how to facilitate. I haven't, um, I haven't arrived anywhere. Right. in my recovery journey beyond the fact that, you know, I'm here and, and still learning. And so what does recovery look like? Each person's going to honestly have to answer that for themselves. And I think that's really, really important because a lot of times I do feel like people try and tell people what their recovery should look like. Hmm. Uh, not okay. I'll go down this road. Like is 90 meetings in 90 days. Absolutely necessary. <laughs> maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe it is. It, for me, I've never done that. And I can tell you right now, I would never do that. I would never have done it in a million years, only because my other life circumstances, like um, with work and with family obligations and with other things that I had going on in my life, I, I don't think it would have been actually healthy for me to do 90 meetings in 90 days, I probably would have been counterproductive and burned me out and been a little bit too much. So I remember in treatment one time, 
you know how they make you uh, come up with a relapse prevention plan and uh, you, need, you need to write it out. And I, I presented my relapse prevention plan to this counselor and he was like, I don't, I, that's way too much, man. You can't do all that stuff. Like it's not realistic. Right. And, and it was a real eye opener. It was like, I had this, this tremendous ambition, but um that I was trying to write out for myself, but I needed the council to be like, okay, pace yourself. What do you want your recovery to look like? Are you doing too much? Are you not doing enough? Is there a lot of downtime? Boredom's a killer, especially in early recovery. We know that, right? So pe people need to find their own path for sure and what it looks like for them. Absolutely. So uh, just in general, in, in a more generalized version, obviously it's going to look different on each individual, but what does like how does the recovery process work in smart? How would you say that process takes place? Like for 12 steps, it's easy. We say you work the fucking 12 steps, right? That's how yeah. it works. So what does that look like? I, I think I've seen some of the meetings, how, how people kind of interact and learn some tools during that. What else happens along with that? And can you expound on it a bit, please? So smart has four uh, key areas that uh, they would say are their their four point program is what they actually call it. So building motivation uh, and maintaining change, coping with urges to use, managing your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in an effective way without result resorting to your addictive behaviors and living a balanced, positive and healthy life, whatever that might look like for you. And then, so as, as you mentioned, yeah, smart has tools. That is basically what they call them and their tools are, there's a whole, there's actually a smart handbook. Um, look at that smart recovery handbook. And it's got all their tools in them. They're not, they can be worked out in any order, but basically they're, they're frameworks for identifying uh, belief structures, emotional stumbling blocks, triggers, uh, things that are pre preventing you from maintaining your motivation in your recovery. And you can work through them. So let's, I'll just give you an example of one of my favorite smart tools it's called disputing irrational beliefs they, they give all their tools acronyms so dibs right disputing irrational beliefs and basically it says like let's look at what you are actually thinking about a given situation or circumstance and let's just let's identify let's step away from ourselves let's try and be as objective as possible here and identify if what you believe is rational or irrational because it's, it's amazing when people start really taking a look at their thought processes, how many irrational thoughts they think and how many things they actually believe at a foundational core level that are untrue. So in the smart uh, guide gives some really like some really fundamental and probably relevant examples. Like um, here's an irrational belief. I always fail. And that was one that I actually held because I, I really identified strongly as I am a failure. And I spent a lot of my time um, comparing myself to other people, comparing myself to peers, people that were in my kind of age bracket, my life stage. So like I'm in my early 40s now, but when I was in my early 30s and, in, and I was getting into recovery and I would look at people that I knew that were married, that owned houses and that had happy families. And I would always compare myself to these individuals and say, look, I'm such a failure. I'm 10, I'm 15 years behind these people in life. If I had only got, on, got my act together when I was younger, you know, I would own a house now and I would have this, you know, my, my life would look this way. And so the irrational belief 
uh, underneath all that was, was I am a failure, right? And, and so you have to question that. Smart would teach you to question that. Like, are you really a failure at everything? Right. Is everything you do, do you fail at? And so, so then you can be a little more objective and you can identify a couple things you do well, a couple things you're good at couple things you're actually really gifted in and so it's it's about honesty in that in that sense and there's a you can spend a whole day paying attention to your thoughts thinking about are they true are they rational is this reality and like another one for me was uh i think this is pretty common to people with addiction is uh that idea that you know, when a craving when a really powerful craving would come on you have this belief that you can't get rid of it unless you just give in to it. And it's like, and I would tell myself, oh, I'll just give in and then I can restart, right? Because then I'll get rid of the craving. Like this right. emotion, because it's, it's, it's difficult. It's emotionally painful to like have this thing weighing on you, like driving you to want to use. And you, you, you wait 10 minutes and you wait half an hour and it's not going away. You wait an hour or maybe you push through a day and it's still there. And it's like, okay. If I give into it, then I can get rid of it, right? Is this rational? Is this uh, is this true? Like what? So you got to step outside of yourself. You, Smart really encourages people to be become self aware, and I think that is something that is difficult in youth. I think it does get easier as people mature and grow. Um, I mean, we know that substance use tends to stunt our emotional growth, right? So if you started using drugs when you were young say in your teenage years, and then you finally arrive uh, at, a, at a season of sobriety in your late 20s, or early 30s, you really haven't matured emotionally much. And so learning to become self-aware uh, is going to be a process that you need to go through and SMART really helps with that. Absolutely. I could definitely identify with, uh, it's funny when, and I've had this experience so far, anytime I talk to someone from another recovery modality, they, they seem to share that they've found these answers or, or, you know, ways of understanding themselves that I'm like, that's exactly the same shit I came to, right? That's the same conclusions I got that helped me live a healthy life today. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how we, we go different ways to get to that same understanding or similar understandings, at least they might not be exactly the same, but I could identify yeah. a lot with what you just said. Well, for most of us, our starting point is the same goal, right? I mean, for most people, if they're struggling with addiction, their goal is abstinence and a, and a life that's free of that controlling substance. So how you get there, who cares? Right. <laughs> find, your, find your way, right? Right. So uh, our program, specifically ours at least, I think all 12-step programs might have a similar uh, idea as this, but ours says that the promise is freedom from active addiction. Uh, <laughs> along with some other freedoms, hopefully that you get, but that's the main promise right there. Freedom yeah. from active addiction. Is there any such promise that smart has about their program that it provides anything? Um, I would say that their focus or their, their hope would be, I mean, in their language, it would be developing a more positive lifestyle. So positive yeah. Lifestyle developing a more positive lifestyle. And, like and so, again, it really does leave it up to the individual to define that. Uh, it, and so, 
I mean, addiction is an interesting and complicated thing that a lot of people are discussing on the fringes now in terms of the way we define it and recognizing some, some experts are, are recognizing that everybody's addicted to something mm. and that addiction in itself is not really a very helpful word. Uh, there is a psychologist in, in Europe that actually prefers the word bonding, which I find very interesting because his, he says, what are you bonding with? And then we can determine if our bonds are healthy or unhealthy. Just like the way uh, Johan Hari, the journalist, has come up with that saying, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. So, um, because I actually use my, my time in addiction, I'll often say I was in a relationship with heroin mm. and, and because that's really what it was. I mean, uh, my wife and people in my life would say like, like we would call it your, my mistress, right? right? It was like, it's such a powerful relationship. And so, uh, if we think of addiction, like bonding, um, you may be developing new, healthier addictions, right? And, and not all addictions have the potential of, of killing us quickly, like a lot of substances will, or shortening our life or quality of life or resulting in bankruptcy and other, other serious life-altering problems. Many addictions uh, could be beneficial. So, you know, I'm kind of in this uh, new learning curve where I'm trying to figure out how we define all this stuff because take for example we've had individuals that come to smart recovery with a food addiction they'll identify as having a food addiction and you can't stop eating food right so you know this is not something so they have to come up with a way of measuring uh when it's when their eating has become healthy as opposed to problematic and so that's a really interesting thing to navigate. And I think our understanding of addiction uh, medically and as a society is going to continue to evolve. Yeah, it's so interesting. You're right, because uh, in talking to people that, that deal with like the sex addiction programs or, or the food addiction programs and, you know, they have these what they call bottom lines or, or inner circles of behavior that constitute like a relapse for them, what they would call a relapse. And just trying to think of that in my terms, like of, I don't know that I can have a healthy relationship with heroin, right? Like I right. just don't know that, that exists. So yeah. it's, it's definitely an interesting thing to look at. Um, but you probably figured that out through trial and error. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots, of, it. Lots yeah. of experimentation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that you can you arrived at a conclusion that's true for you. And I think if that same conclusion is true for me uh, and, and that's, that's valid. Like no one can take that away from us. I'm never going to come to a point in, in time in my life where I'm like, well, I think, uh, I think heroin might be an okay option now. Like it's just, it's just out forever. Right. So, so are there any signs and and this is another one where, you know, there's no real way to tell if somebody in our fellowship was like on the verge of going downhill, but there's some kind of behavioral signs that we can see. I just didn't know if, since you're using more of a CBT method, if there's any signs that would indicate somebody is, you know, really needs to take a look at themselves because they're headed in a, a possibly a bad direction or the opposite signs that, Hey, uh, you know, I look for these in people and that tells me that they are pretty strong in their current recovery. So I have a, a good story for this uh, from my own life because I was uh, had a counselor that asked me to write out my next relapse, which sounds pretty morbid, but it was a really healthy experience in the sense that I had mentioned to you already that relapse was a real defining thing for my life. It felt like it just over and over and over again. And so 
the fear was, you know, another relapse, right? That's, that's what everyone that was close to me and loved me was afraid of. It's like, how do we know that he's really done with this? Like, there's been seasons of sobriety, three months, six months, a year, a year and a half. Um, and then he's gone back. So, you know, everyone wants an assurance that it will never happen again. But I had this counselor that was like, write out your next relapse and tell me what leads up to it because it's key. And I've already mentioned that there were studies that show that relapses typically are developing two to three months in advance of actually picking up the drug of choice. So that means there should be a lot of warning signs, right? Right. Leading up to that. So uh, SMART doesn't really have anything super specific about helping identify these things. And of course, they're going to be unique to everyone. But I found a tool um, that... uh, what this counselor gave me in conjunction with that assignment, writing out my next relapse that really helped me identify vulnerabilities for me, areas that I needed to watch for that were signs that would be come into play if I was heading back down that road. Mm-hmm. And so that tool is called the faster scale. You can Google it, people, F-A-S-T-E-R scale. And it, it's also an acronym, faster, faster scale step. The, each letter in the faster scale stands for some something which leads to relapse. So the F is for getting priorities. The A is for anxiety. S is for speeding up. T is for ticked off. E is for exhausted. And then R would be the actual physical relapse. And underneath each one of those letters is a whole series of potential behaviors or, or um, attitudes that could be developing in a person that would build off one another and then and then lead down that road. So when I wrote that assignment, I identified like key stressors for myself that would be things that I would need to watch for. Like finances, money was a huge one for me. I had a, a huge debt load as a result of my addiction and uh, bills coming due and uh, extra like a feeling tight financially was a real put me at a real risk of moving up in the faster scale. So just to give some examples of of like things that are on that um, on that scale under forgetting priorities, like are you starting to keep secrets? Are you finding yourself bored more than usual? Are you isolating more than usual? Are you developing obsessions in your relationships? Are you um, hiding money? or procrastinating or lying and you know people so this requires a a level of of real honesty if you're going to answer those things accurately and you could actually find out where you're at on that scale uh and it's let's see if those behaviors are, are showing up for you or which ones you would be most vulnerable to and you would get an idea so then you can reset like i'm if you haven't picked up and used yet you can you can get back You don't have to keep going down that road, right? So if you find yourself somewhere on that scale, you can take measures to get get into proper accountability, get in touch with loved ones, let them know where you're at, and reset yourself. And that's so, interesting because a, a lot of times I feel like we associate relapse uh, with the inability to clearly see ourselves anymore, and so it would mm. be like from my. I guess just from the perspective, and I'm not saying this is the right perspective, but just one that kind of has been given to me over time is like it's really hard to not be in denial during that relapse process and so it would be really hard to answer that scale honestly so i i I agree with you i hear what you're saying and i suspect that 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 might be further down the scale like if you're already Mm -hmm. getting into that denial mode you may have allowed it to go too far already 
Mm. Now, like if you're checking boxes off, I mean, this, I had a propensity for, for prepping for a relapse uh, and hiding money or, or getting a stash. Right. Right. So if you see that box hiding money and you are hiding money and you can't answer that, honestly, then there might be a bigger problem here (laughs) that, that I don't know if anyone can help you with. You might not be ready for recovery. Like really, if you're at that at that point, because that's early in the scale, right? Right. So if you're if denial comes a little bit later, and then yes, I agree with you. I think if you've entered into that denial stage, reversing it is going to be much more difficult. And that's where I hope that you have established good accountability and people in your lives that are aware of your warning signs that you have made yourself vulnerable to those people and told them your warning signs so that they can call you out on it. And right. that's, that's the healthy connections that everyone in recovery needs in order to maintain their recovery. To go back to one thing you said earlier, and I meant to ask this when you were telling me about how the program works, uh, you, you learn these tools, which seem super valuable and kind of like the core of the program. Do you only learn them in the meetings or are there other ways to learn them throughout the process? Is there like just skills classes or, or readings or? So smart leaves almost the entirety of uh, an individual's recovery journey up to them. Uh, the meetings, the physical meetings or the online meetings, there are online meetings that people can participate in are, um, are available, but outside of that, it's really up to the individual. They can purchase a handbook and work through it at their own pace. Uh, but SMART doesn't have any external offerings of counselors. They don't have a sponsorship system. Um, they don't really emphasize or encourage uh, relationships in any capacity. That's totally up to individuals. Um, like, like as far as how much socializing you do within a meeting or outside of a meeting with other participants is totally up to you. So, yeah, there's not not anything in, in that context uh, for for individuals. They've got to take ownership. Now, with that handbook, is that meant to be gone through by yourself without anybody else? It, it can totally be done by yourself. And like with anything recovery related, I would always say just do it as best you can. Like you don't have to do it good. You don't have to you don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to it's, you, like things change, right? You, we right. change our minds. You know, one of the early things in the recovery handbook is uh, your hierarchy of values. And it's identifying the five things that are the most valuable to you in your life. Like what do you value most, right? And for a lot of people, obviously in addiction, if they're truly honest with themselves, they put their substance at the top of that list, right? But if you're entering into recovery, you want to rearrange your hierarchy of values. So and those probably change. I mean, maybe the first time you sit down and write those out, you come up with your five things that you find the most valuable. And I bet you if you're you're really going on a journey in a year, those are going to be different. And in two or three years, they might be different again. And I think as people grow and mature, age in life, uh, maybe those things will become a little more solid and rigid and not change quite as much. But Interesting you know, that you mentioned uh, not having like the the handbook can be done by yourself and and the not having a formal version of sponsorship. Not that, I mean, honestly, uh, the 12 step version of sponsorship isn't formal either, but it's just kind of implied. We just did our episode last week. We talked a lot about sponsorship and how that looks. We try to incorporate like how this looks for somebody new to recovery, but also what it would look like for somebody who's never been in recovery or had an addiction problem in case they're listening, like maybe they could get a better understanding. And, 
we sort of, I think, came to the conclusion. I know I'm monopolizing talking here, Billy. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we came to the conclusion that, like, having a guide and or mentor figure in your life is pretty universal for every human. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting that there's not one uh, in SMART. I guess it's just kind of like an outside issue to them. Well, I don't think SMART says, like, this is all you should do is SMART if you're going into recovery. Like, just just go to SMART meetings and you're good. Like, I think that we, we always encourage people to pursue one-on-one counseling. I think mm-hmm. it, it's really tremendously valuable and probably necessary. I don't think you're going to, no matter how comfortable you might be feeling at a SMART meeting, I think some of the deeper traumas and emotional issues that people are facing are not going to come out in those settings. Uh, so yeah, while we don't have the formal sponsorship thing, I mean, I would be a person who, who says mentorship and accountability and counseling are, are very important elements of a person's recovery journey and probably absolutely necessary in early recovery. Right. Uh, and maybe you can revise that as, as time goes on. Interesting. Uh, so I, I already know the answer to this next question, but we're going to ask it anyway. Uh, is there a specific higher power or do you have to follow a certain religion? Now, obviously, SMART does not identify with any of those. So I guess this question is more, is there a place for a higher power in your SMART program? Like, is it ever fit in somewhere? I think, yes. SMART intentionally distances themselves from religious and spiritual messaging. Um, but they don't take a stance in any, in any way. Right. So individuals are free to have their belief systems, free to believe what they will and have faith. Um, my faith, which I said, I went on a journey, uh, like I'm, I'm still a Christian. I still believe in, in the God of the Bible, and I still operate with, uh, with that faith. It's, it's different and evolving, and like I said, I kind of called it a bit of a wrestling match uh, in, in a sense, trying to figure all that out. Um, and it plays a role in my recovery. It is, it is important because of so, the things the Bible teaches, I, I feel, are, are valuable lessons of wisdom that um, if people follow those guidelines, they can improve their lives and they can influence and other people in a positive manner. And uh, I mean, like even the, um, even the AA's foundation on, on the four absolutes, right. Of absolute honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. I mean, those are in essence uh, spiritual biblical principles, right? So a lot of those smart doesn't take a stance or position or even encourage uh, faith in any way. Um, again, they give individuals that participate the freedom to to incorporate whatever f- faith they would like into their recovery journey. Awesome. Uh, do they have any specific rules about what is clean or sober, or is that up for everybody's own interpretation? They do. <laughs> uh, I actually don't know them off the top of my head, but I, I know I, that they're on their website. Um, maybe I can find it. It's, but in any case, one thing that I do know that they, um, they are okay with is what we call up here in Canada opioid agonist therapy, or I believe in the States it's referred to as MAT, medication-assisted therapy. So drugs like methadone and suboxone will be, people on them will be 
welcome to, to use them and participate in smart meetings. Um, and again, I think just with, based on the way smart is, is structured and their, their principles, if that person wanted to call themselves fully in recovery or sober, that would be their prerogative. Like no one's going to tell them that they're not. Um, and I think that that's valuable. I think that that person has to find find their journeys. You know, some people resign themselves to being on methadone for the rest of their lives. Other people are are keen on on tapering and getting off of it as soon as they can. But that process is complicated and and not not easy or smooth. So um, yeah, smart smart is okay with people uh, identifying where they're at uh, in their recovery in their recovery and how they would want to call themselves or if they'd want to call themselves sober or abstinent. We, Very yeah. interesting. And I think one of the main things that I'm going to leave this conversation super curious about, not that we're quite done yet, but just the fact that SMART does kind of have a stance about using and, and, and a goal of, you know, hopefully complete abstinence one day. And yet at the same time, it's not like this hardened goal that if you're not living up to that, you can't, still be considered a full-fledged member or whatever you would want to call it it's really interesting it's kind of like a little ambiguous it it is i mean they are they are abstinence oriented i think that that is their their emphasis but again i mean maybe we're being repetitive here now like they recognize the journey for each individual and what it might take to get there and so that's a process. Like, for instance, I mean, we haven't talked about smoking cigarettes, but I mean, uh, that addiction is almost always attached uh, to a lot of uh, other substance use. And many people, most people uh, that do quit other drugs that still smoke wouldn't consider themselves, um, wouldn't consider that as the, they would consider themselves sober still, right? They would consider themselves abstinent. I still smoke cigarettes, but I'm still abstinent because I don't use the other drugs that were the the major problem in my life, right? Right. So it's a bit of a gray area uh, for everyone. People need to find their own path. On that note, here's a bit of – I'll leave you with this funny thought because just on the idea of labels and people identifying as an addict or whatnot, I I quit smoking as well. I know many people that have quit smoking cigarettes. I mean, people quit all the time. No one walks around 10 years after quitting smoking cigarettes and calls themselves a smoking addict. (laughs) True. Right? So it's very strange to me. I mean, nicotine is widely considered one of the hardest drugs in the world to quit. Uh, People do say it's almost as difficult to quit nicotine as it is to quit heroin uh, when they've had a long-term, like, addiction to to that drug. So uh, it's – and most people that do quit, quit without help of 12-step groups or treatment programs or detox facilities. They, they arrive at a place in their life where they recognize the drug is not serving the purpose it used to and that there's other more meaningful things that they would like to pursue and that that drug is interfering with. And so they, they eventually quit. And that might take a bunch of tries and a bunch of lapses, but most people that do want to quit smoking eventually do. And uh, they don't they don't walk around with labels. Yeah, <laughs> out there five yeah. years later, like I'm a smoker named Jason. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> right. Everyone would scratch their head at that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, is there a type of person? Uh, and I know you described yourself, who you know, smart seemed to be the ideal kind of personality fit for you. So, is there uh, generally a type of person that you personally believe? is a good fit for smart as opposed to a different place. So I would say that um, if you're, 
on a recovery journey, I just, I would encourage a person to try every possible modality that they can get their hands on just to find out what resonates with them. And that like, don't be locked into to anything. I think in Canada, um, we don't really do this. It's, it's a difficult thing that I hear about in the States where courts sentence people to the 12 steps and that I've heard multiple stories about individuals being wanting to, to do something else wanting to do smart recovery or wanting to go to a different program and uh, that that not being an option for them. So uh, it, that's disappointing um, because we need to give people as many options as they want. And I think people should try as many things as they can. With that said, as smart as a psychological approach with the cognitive behavioral therapy. So I would say that people that are, are more analytical, more um, that lean away from the, the spiritual solution uh, would maybe be the ones that would benefit the most from smart. But I mean, you'll never know till you try it. And we have plenty of people who participate in both. So that's mm. also worth noting, right? They come to smart, but they also go to AA or NA meetings uh, at other times in the week. And they find, they find them helpful. Like if you find smart helpful, it doesn't mean you find NA unhelpful. It just means, you know, it, it's clicking for you on one, on one level and, and maybe that's clicking for you on another or, or, or vice versa. Right. So. That's super yeah. interesting. And, and you also bring up another question I wanted to ask. Do you guys sign court slips at all? Is that a thing? Uh, we do sign slips for probation officers. So that um, we have a couple of probation officers where I live here in this area that will will ask guys to go to smart recovery because that, for whatever reason, that officer's uh, keen on it, I right. guess. And, or maybe I think they probably give them an option, like go to a meeting, right? And, right. and smart's one of the options. And so we'll sign those for them that they 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 were there. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure you've heard of recovery housing. We have a, a crap ton of recovery housing down here, and a lot of times the recovery house will also have slips to be signed to prove you hit these meetings. Would you also be willing to sign? Recovery? We would we would sign anything acknowledging if a person needed it for their accountability structure, whatever that looks like, whether it's a recovery house or a court system. We would we would participate in in that for sure. And you said there was no like rules about dating in the program. So anybody who's looking to get laid early on, go to smart. <laughs> uh, is there anything else now? Obviously, you know, we would say uh, behavioral therapy is something else that is like smart recovery, but mm -hmm. uh, I, maybe even beyond that, is there any other program that's even remotely similar? And if there's not, what would be the differences between like a cognitive behavioral therapy with a counselor and what you would get in smart? So, uh, I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy is very similar to dialectical behavioral therapy and then rational emotive behavioral therapy, which would be its precursor. So all those psychological approaches would be have their similarities. Um, the difference between whether you do one of those with a counselor and in the more meeting context of SMART would be probably the depth, the depth you can go on your personal issues and your comfortability with being vulnerable and open in a room as opposed to being one-on-one. -on -one. So the principles are the same. How an individual would apply them in their, into their life would be the same. Uh, the only difference would be uh, probably the safety that a person might feel in the different environments. And, and the cost, for sure. <laughs> and the cost. Yeah, now I don't know how it is where you guys are, but we have... Um, we have some free counseling, substance use counseling available in Canada. So uh, like in my city, people that live within this city can get sessions, one-on-one -on -one sessions with a counselor uh, 
uh, for free. So that is, and they can get cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, even other pro approaches in that model, no cost. Wow, we need more of that. You hear that, USA? What the fuck <laughs> yeah. are we doing down here? We need more of this Canada stuff, man. That's great. Um, is there an end to your program or a graduation? Does that exist? Does not exist. No end. Um, the we the general encouragement to individuals is that they come uh, as often and as as long as they would like. So you know, you come to as many meetings as you would like, um, as often as you would like for for as long as you would like. If you feel that SMART needs to be part of your life for the rest of your life, then you should do that. And if you feel that you have got what you need from it and you're, you're kind of done, then you can conclude that as well and be, be free to go. But yeah, in that sense, there's not a heck of a lot of emphasis on, like I already said, celebrating sobriety. There's no cakes. There's no, uh, you know, graduate. Yeah. There's no graduations, nothing like that. And I, I think it's got a value in that sense in that it's just like, sorry, we're not, we're not getting too excited about this. It's your life. Like right. make your life what you want it to be. And we're glad that you benefited from the program and what we offer, but um, you know, no one's going to stand on a chair and bake you a cake. I liked all of that except no cake. I'm really sad. <laughs> we, uh, we do have a, in the, in the one meeting that I participated in, we have a baker and oh. she is great. And she brings in baked goods all the time. So right. that'll make up for it then. It's so hard. Hard for the people with the uh, the food. <laughs> yeah, I right? You wouldn't like, you wouldn't have a, a meth uh, lab person. No. <laughs> samples. Uh, so, is there any like I I don't want to just say hope because I think there's always hope that we find this recovery and and in our life purpose decide to give back some. But is there any principle of smart recovery of like, hey, even when you're done, maybe we'd love for you to still hang out and be, you know. I guess not because you don't have guides, right? Like, how does that? Well, there is an encouragement to become to volunteer and even become a facilitator. And I mean, Smart is there are a lot of meetings. It is all over the place, but it's not even. I mean, it doesn't even compare to how many NA and AA twelve step meetings exist around the world. So there's a lot of room to grow. So the encouragement would be that that if you've really benefited and found this program valuable, that you would become a facilitator and maybe start a meeting in your neighborhood. So we 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 need more for sure. Gotcha. What about dues? Is there any dues of any sort? How does Smart pay its way? <clears throat> so most of the uh, meetings are held in spaces that would be rented. So we do a pass the hat. Uh, we pass the hat around the room and people throw in a loony or a toonie or, or whatever they're, they're able or, or if they're not, that's fine too. Uh, and those would go towards um, just paying for the space. So there's no facilitators are not paid. There's no paid positions within the smart uh, organization, at least at the, at the meeting level. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, there's no, um, nothing to worry about there. So mainly covering rent, which would also include, we put, we put coffee on generally speaking and, and that sort of thing uh, would be all we need to collect, collect some dollars for. Awesome. Is there anything we didn't ask that, or I'm sorry, I should give you, damn, That's I'm okay. just forgetting yeah. you're here, Billy. Uh, <laughs> okay. Is there anything you wanted to ask? Um, just during the meetings, would there be like a sharing session or, I mean, that's kind of all our meetings are. We didn't, no, <laughs> we, we didn't, uh, we didn't really talk about what a meeting really yeah. looks yeah, what like. What would a right? meeting yeah. look like? Yeah. Yeah. So I said, we, we tend to sit in a circle, uh, which is to avoid any, any hierarchy, but, um, 
our meetings are loaded with crosstalk. So while we we have an introduction and we read our, our opening statement, then we do a check-in. So we'll go around the room and we'll ask everyone to check in uh, how, essentially how their last week has been, good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever they want to share, whatever they're comfortable with. If you're new to the meeting, then we, we clarify you don't even have to say anything. Uh, you don't have to participate if you don't want to. You can you're, be free to observe. After the check-in, uh, we kind of, the facilitator will listen for cues because oftentimes there's themes within a check-in. A lot of people were feeling the same way. You know how uh, maybe a bunch of people are experiencing their first summer sober and that comes with new triggers uh, or that or Christmas season is around and, or approaching and party and there's parties happening. And so we, the facilitator may bring that into a conversation, which will be in which crosstalk is permitted. So maybe an idea is put forth. We'll discuss people's thoughts, people's concerns. Or what are you going to do about um, these, all these parties your family is inviting you to, and there's going to be a lot of alcohol around uh, this, this Christmas season. How are you going to handle that? What's your, what's your plan? And people will put out their ideas. People will put out what they've done. And so we'll have a very uh, casual conversation in that sense. And then we will generally go through uh, something from the workbook. So we'll photocopy uh, a page because not everyone's got a handbook uh, and hand that out. And then we'll read through it, discuss it, have an open crosstalk conversation about the tool. And at the end of the meeting, we do another round of checks out what stood out for you. Did anything resonate with you? Did, anything, did you find anything particularly helpful this meeting? Was it completely useless for you? <laughs> uh, and then, you know, do that and then sign off till, till next time. So that's, that's how our meeting looks. Yeah. I'm surely glad nobody asked me if some of the NA meetings I've been to were completely useless for me because <laughs> I would have felt really bad saying yes. Um, is there anything we didn't ask that you feel like you want to talk about with SMART or that you want to let people to know before they check it out or if they're interested? No, um, I th this was a really uh, productive conversation. I really enjoyed ch chatting with you guys and talking about this. I always get my own thoughts clearer, you know, yeah. when I have conversations like this. So that's great. Smart, uh, if you're interested in more, you can find their official website at smartrecovery.org. There's also a find meeting button there. So you can hit that, pop in your uh, zip code, postal code, and find a meeting near you. Uh, so, and I also mentioned online, online meetings, but everything you want to learn about smart is there. So I highly encourage people to, to check that out. And, uh, and then just a note about myself, I, I do a lot of, uh, advocacy work, sharing my story, uh, thought around recovery and also in response to the ongoing overdose crisis, which we didn't get a chance to discuss, but is something that uh, is very close to my heart in terms of my passion in, in mitigating the crisis and then seeing what we should do as, as a nation uh, in North America with, with our drug policy. And so if people are interested in those things uh, and what's been happening in those areas, they can check my Facebook. I'm at DGA Snyder, DGA Snyder with a Y on Facebook, or my Twitter is at Daniel Snyder one. Um, I did have a question. So our podcast sponsor is a local community organization, Voices of Hope. And they oh, have cool. sponsored a, or I don't know if you call it sponsored. They were hosting a smart recovery meeting in this area. Um, would you have any suggestions on how to promote that or, or get that out there or how to kind of reach more people that maybe looking for an alternative? One way that it's been um, 
effective at people finding out about it in our community is the fact that our local community services organizations uh, promote it and actually host a meeting. So Langley Community Services, where I live, they have a substance use counseling division, and they are 100% on board with smart recovery uh, as a modality. Uh, so they a meeting is hosted there. As a result, if you are someone in our community that's struggling with substance use, you're probably going to end up calling them at some point. So that's one reason people find out about it, because they are the place where you can get the free counseling mm. or find other resources and whatnot. Uh, so I would encourage uh, that meeting to obviously do what they can online, do the Facebook stuff and everything, but see what other organizations are doing recovery-related stuff, recovery houses, treatment centers, and things in the community that exist and have a following, and, and let them know about your meeting. Put up uh, flyers over there, put up posters there, and try and draw people in that way. Um, meetings are a funny thing. Like, you know, we... we they go through their evolutions. They have five or eight or 10 people and, and then they go to 20 and we had, we had 30 people and we, we had, a, a, we couldn't fit any more people in our room at one point, which becomes another problem. Right. right. So, you know, you want to, you want your meeting to grow, but then you, you, have, you find you have a limit, right. And you need another, either another meeting or a bigger space. I find with smart meetings because of the crosstalk format, um, about 15 people to 18 is like really uh, max it's really max like 12 to 15 is probably super ideal and when you get to 20 or 25 people the loud people do all the talking and the quiet people say nothing right whereas if you're right in that wheelhouse of 12 to 15 then you can level the playing field and allow everybody an opportunity to speak and a good facilitator knows how to um uh tell tell certain people to stop talking <laughs> and allow other people to, to talk, right? That's interesting that you put it as high as, as 12 to 15, just in studying. It sounds a lot like group therapy. I know it's technically not because there's not a therapist in the room, but uh, like the, you know, the guru of group therapy, Yalom, suggests like eight as a max, and it's hard to handle more than that. So 12 to 15, I'm like, good God, can you imagine having 15 people in a group? It would be, that's a lot. Like, that's interesting uh, i hadn't heard that so you know i'm not going by any research on this one i'm just going by experience with the room size but um i mean every meeting's somewhat different too you definitely want people to feel comfortable to share and i know yeah when it gets too big the comfortability and the willingness to be vulnerable goes down right so can i ask are you in a crunch for time or anything no not particularly <laughs> I, I have a I have a poker game later tonight. Well, and I tell you why, and and I don't know. You might have to edit this out if you're not interested. But I am incredibly interested in like some of the more progressive things they've done in Canada. Oh with, sure, like Insight, the safe injection stuff, and um, I can't remember the name, but didn't they have the big hotel there in Vancouver where they were housing uh, like for homeless? Yeah, and addicts and stuff. Um, I can't, I read a book or, or actually listened to an audio book about it a few years ago. And yeah, that's the Portland Hotel Society. Yeah, the Port yeah there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I haven't yeah. kept up with that stuff, but in our area, again, you know, we have a local community organization that's pushing for a lot of those. Um, mm. We're a, I guess you would call it a pretty conservative area as far as the culture here. Sure. So they're not on board with like, uh, safe injection sites and things like that. So it's a local community organization pushing for some of those things. 
um, and just how they kind of played out in Canada. So, yeah, like I said, Canada is really progressive, BC in particular. Um, and my opinions on harm reduction measures have come full circle, too. So I, I was raised conservative, as I mentioned, and I actually would still probably lean conservative on, well, I would say I'm economically conservative, but because of our approach to um, drug issues, I'm, I'm really socially liberal on those things. And so I would be someone who is conservative, but supports harm reduction and even decriminalization and even potentially the legalization of drugs. And one of the things like Vancouver is the first city in the world to have a safe injection site legally uh, in sight. And now there's overdose prevention sites and safe consumption sites in many parts of the province and moving across Canada as well. Um, our harm reduction approach includes things like handing out needles, a very, very thorough naloxone program. So naloxone is widely distributed. It is, it is free. It's easily available. Um, anybody can get it. Uh, you can get it from almost any pharmacy by just walking in and asking for it and they will hand it to you. Uh, so those kinds of approaches and my, like I said, my perspective on harm reduction came full circle in light of the overdose crisis and just the devastating number of deaths that we have in British Columbia, a population of about 5 million people. The last three months we've been losing as many as six people a day. So uh, I don't know how that scales uh, on a per 100,000 basis, but it's really high. Like it's probably in North America, BC is one of the hardest hit areas. I think in the US, uh, the Pennsylvania region might be one of the hardest hits. I'm not 100% sure. But um, so when I saw the number of people dying and then recognized also for myself as an individual that with, had I been using uh with the drug supply is contaminated by fentanyl as it is now when I was using, I might not be talking to you guys. I might not be right. alive. Right. So we have a highly toxic drug supply and we need to do, we need to do something about it. You cannot help a person in recovery if they're not alive. So that was, that was the shift point for me on harm reduction. It was like the, the argument is always about tough love versus, versus enabling as if it's like this black and white thing, like, you know, you're the loved one with your family member and your loved one is struggling with an addiction and you're either enabling them or you're cutting them off. You're tough. You're operating in tough love. And like the, the TV show uh, intervention, which I have a real problem with because I find that it does more har harm than good. And studies have been done on that method of intervention. The, the method in which you sit, you blindside the person you sit them down and say, if you don't go to treatment today, we're cutting you out of our lives. We're not even going to talk to you anymore until you make a change. And you're taking an individual who's already disconnected from society. They're disconnected from themselves. They're disconnected from their family. They burn bridges. And then you are going to tell them, you're going to threaten them with more disconnection if they don't do what you want them to do. And somehow we're surprised that they don't, we're surprised when they run down the street as, as far and as fast away as they can, right? So that method of intervention is clearly ineffective. So my, my thinking on harm reduction is let's keep people alive. Let's get them naloxone. Let's, here's a pro program that we've embarked on in British Columbia. It's called Safe Supply. 
So we recognize how toxic the drug supply is, and we recognize we have extremely vulnerable individuals who are very precariously housed and are high risk of overdose. And they are using such a toxic drug supply that their risk of overdose and COVID-19 is through the roof. We need to do something to mitigate this. Let's give them prescription-grade substances of their choice that are clean, not contaminated by fentanyl, and will at least prevent them from being at the same level of risk of overdose. Now, there's a lot of controversy around this. It's a bit messy. It's not been rolled out properly. Most doctors are not totally on board with it. It's not something, like when you try and make broad policy changes like this and implement them kind of uh, in a provincial manner, like the state state at the state level, as opposed to coming in from the federal level, uh, it's going to be messy and it's not going to, they're not going to roll out very smoothly. But it is something we're attempting to do. It does at least mitigate the toxic drug supply in some respect. And all these places, the, the needle exchanges, the overdose prevention sites, uh, the doctors that they see for safe supply, they become health, they become connection points for individuals who are disconnected. You have to go there. You have to see these people. And hopefully the workers there recognize that they have a role to play in which they can be a voice of reason, hope, influence, a positive encouragement, someone that shares with that person that they have value, that they have potential, that there's more to them than the life that they're currently living, that change is possible. And yet at the same time, we're accepting you where you're at and we're recognizing that this is a process and it's a journey. I mean, if you're someone like myself who was addicted to heroin, you might recognize the amount of time you invest in the hustle to make sure you have enough drugs and avoid withdrawal. And like that is a, that is a time consuming that's more than a full-time job, right? Like it is, and if you're homeless and needing to come up with the money, like I maintained my housing and employment throughout my addiction and most of my drug uh, money came from credit cards, which was a major, major overwhelming debt and resulted in, a, in an eventual bankruptcy. But if you're homeless and you, you don't have a job and you're spending a all day. You're spending 20 hours a day trying to come up with enough money to uh, maintain your, your opioid addiction. And so if you can meet that person where they're at and take the need for that hustle out by providing them with a safe supply, the, the world opens up to them in a sense. They're now connecting with people in a healthy regard. They don't have to spend, they have free time to maybe get a shower or pursue housing or, you know, take care of themselves in, a, in some other capacity. So I think the argument for harm reduction should not be a conservative versus liberal argument. I think it should be an economic and compassion argument. If you can't win the conservatives over with the compassion angle, you could probably win them over with the economic angle. And a lot of these programs save taxpayer money in the end, right? The drain on the system, uh, criminalizing individuals, uh, break and enter, the ju justice response, the police, the first responders responding to, f to overdoses, the drain on the, the financial drain on the taxpayer is huge. And when you do a housing first policies and you put people into treatment uh, or give them the option, you, you make sure that they're not at the high level of risk for overdose, you actually decrease the costs on society. And so there are, are some surprising studies done on how much money that actually saves. And so we need to, I mean, the drug wars failed. Uh, people will always use drugs. We're, we're never going to get away. We're, if, 
if there are still conservatives out there somewhere that believe in some kind of utopia where all drugs will be gone one day and all addiction will be gone, like they are so deluded, they're probably unreachable. Like, we're all getting drunk at night thinking well, that. And, and we're in a culture right now in this county where we are, we're probably about 30 years behind the actual time. So we're probably like... Yeah. You know, so, I mean, there's a lot of organizations and work being done uh, to to change drug policy. We just legalized cannabis. Uh, it, again, it wasn't rolled out very well. The black market for, for marijuana is still thriving in Canada because the government marijuana is too expensive. Uh, so they got to they gotta work on that. They got to do something about that. But, you know, it, fentanyl is not going to go away just because of the DEA does a really good job stopping it at the border. It's just not going to happen. And with the number of people dying, we need to take a different approach to drug policy. We really do. I can't tell you how severely disappointing it is when I just agree with everything you fucking said and I can't argue with you. Oh my God, I, I can't even, there's no fun in this. Uh, that's too bad. You know, it, well, it is good to have people advocating for, for positive change. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. have you seen, we've seen a huge impact with COVID, I guess, has mm. really impacted our overdose rates. Like in the last three months in this county, we've seen a huge, you know, increase in overdoses. Yeah, you've seen the same thing in Canada. They have similar lockdowns to kind of what's going on in the states. Yes, what well, we did, we had a, we were locked down here, kind of quarantined for for quite a while. Um, but yeah, our overdose numbers are up as a result of COVID, and I think there's a, a couple key reasons for that. I think the first would correlate with what's been identified as deaths of despair. So. Uh, in the States, for sure, the increase in opioid overdose deaths, depression, anxiety, and suicide, uh, they've been kind of identified as deaths of despair. And so what's underneath that? Because it's not just about drug use. It's about um, people's sense of meaning, their their beliefs in, in life, um, the perhaps the destruction of the nuclear family in some capacity, moving away from... Uh, the move away from Christian values, I think, has perhaps something to do with it. I mean, America was founded on those principles, and they are pushing hard against them. And people, if we step back from the picture, and we don't just look at individuals and their journey, but we look at the broad story of what's happening in America, it seems like the culture is eroding because people are losing out on... I'm, I'm Canadian, so you can take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt here, guys. I'm not sitting up here in Canada judging the Americans by any means, but <laughs> it just seems... I mean, we're experiencing it too in, in a smaller capacity. Um, so, you know, why are people so depressed? Like drug use actually is down. Uh, youth especially are using less drugs than they were 20 years ago. Yet anxiety and suicide and depression are way, way up. I mean, one in five Americans are prescribed some sort of prescription drug. I think one in five are on antidepressants or sleeping medication. So like that is 35, what is that? Um, I don't know how many people down there. It's a lot of people, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like 70 million people, right, are on medications, and and then more than that, of course, too. So, um, so that you know, this is a difficult topic to talk about because now I'm getting into territory where I have no ideas about solutions. None, right? None. I don't know what you do about a, a nation that's depressed and anxious. Well, uh, I, one thing I say with all the progressive movements you seem to have up in your area, what's the climate like? 
Weather? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we might want to move there. Well, that may, <laughs> the, the weather may be one problem. One reason we we have such a homelessness problem in Vancouver. I mean, it's it's where everyone perhaps ends up in uh, in Canada because you, you would gravitate towards the West Coast because it's the most mild climate. And within an hour's drive of where I am, I have the ocean and I have skiing on mountains and I have beautiful lakes and the climate is mild. Today it was 30 degrees. The sun is shining. So it's, uh, uh, it's beautiful. Our, our winters, we sometimes get a little bit of snow. So it's pretty... It's pretty nice here. We don't know what the fuck 30 degrees yeah. is. That's Celsius. <laughs> oh, wait. Sorry. <laughs> You'll have to do a conversion on that. I don't know what 30 degrees converts to Fahrenheit. Sounds good. It's probably 72 and sunny. It's probably beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, man. So one last thing. You did... Uh, you had pointed me towards a blog you had written at one point. Uh, was that like a guest blog or was that on one of your sites or? Yeah, it's about one of, uh, it's a site that I don't do a whole lot with, but yeah, I'm maintaining it. Uh, maybe I'll pour a little more energy into it in the coming days, but it's mindfulhope.com. Mindful and I enjoy writing and I enjoy writing about my story and my experiences and just the, the way I see recovery and, and drug policy. So uh, I put a lot of my writing up there and also on my Facebook. Okay, yeah, I just I remember you said your Facebook and your Twitter account to look you up, and I yeah. didn't want to leave out the blog if that was something you were interested in. Yeah, Mindful Hope. Mindful Hope, excellent. Well, it's so nice that you came out here tonight, Daniel. Uh, I've definitely learned some stuff about yeah. smart recovery yeah, that I didn't too. know, and it's just been it's been engaging talking to you, honestly, about all kinds of different stuff. I wish we just had more to argue about. It. I love your brain. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm sorry we didn't disagree a little more. <laughs> I know, right? Um, well, well, no. Oh, I love this too because it seems like every time we do one of these with someone who's doing a different recovery modality, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go start going there now. Like, I'm gonna check that out. For a while. The only time I'm gonna have a problem with another modality is when they say it's the only way. Yeah. Right. And you know, because that's just clearly untrue. Right. There's lots right. of paths. So. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming out. Yeah, Hopefully, our you. paths will cross again, and we'll talk. Yes, to you soon. absolutely. Take care, guys. Thanks. Have a great night. All right. Good night. Bye. See ya. This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. So that was a, a great conversation with Daniel about smart recovery. Uh, we do want to, you know, we usually do our recap at the beginning of the episode. We're going to do it here at the end just to cover some of the things people had to say about sponsorship and thoughts. Um, one of the things our, our friend Stephanie, who who messages us frequently during the week, I, I was talking with her and she shared a lot of her personal struggles. I'm not going to get into too much of that. It's a little bit of a personal matter, but just her experiences with 12 step and how she put her sponsors on a pedestal early on because of the way she felt internally and, you know, how that worked out and made the sponsorship sponsee relationship pretty murky and, and just the whole dynamics of it got weird and what she was looking for out of it might not have been really what we talk about, what we're hoping to look for out of it. And I, I think 
what I got out of that was that, you know, it was a pretty good thing to explore sponsorship and maybe not that there's any definition of what it's supposed to be, but just some general ideas of like, Hey, this is what a healthy sponsorship relationship probably resembles, you know? And cause I think kind of like what he said, what Daniel was talking about was smart. Like I think a lot of people come in and they hit a meeting or two in the wrong town or with the wrong personality and they just get a really sour ass taste of what NA is supposed to be. That is not what I believe NA is at all. Right. And, and he did bring up some important points about, you know, sort of not as much the sponsorship, but like some of the aspects of shame and things like that, Mm. that I thought, yeah, we absolutely do those things. And I have not directly, I, I would say indirectly, I've tried to do some things in my personal program to shy away from that. Things like, you know, when people ask me to sponsor them, I say, this is your journey. This is not, I'm not, le- you know, I'm just helping to kind of steer you along your path. This is your journey and your work. It's not about me and what I have to give you, you know, right. um, and things like that. I, I think that's, imp- I mean, for me personally, it's important, but I think it's important for the individual to take some responsibility for their recovery. It's absolutely about me and what I'm going to give you if I'm sponsoring you. (laughs) I'm kidding. Oh, my God. You know, it was hilarious. If anybody watches the YouTube video, watch Daniel give his hand motions for the the tug of war. That was great. (laughs) Man, if I do some video editing, that's not going to look like tug of war. Um, But no, I I definitely appreciate Stephanie's feedback. Uh, We also had. So it was weird. We posted this on Facebook and. Facebook's been acting really fucking stupid this week about like not being able to find posts or notifications or this, that, and the other. So the one place that we posted it, I had some conversations through comments with people about sponsorship completely disappeared. And I even messaged like the person I know that is a, you know, the group moderator or whatever. And was like, uh, did y'all remove this? Did we do something wrong? Like not in a mean way, but just, I, I'd like to follow the group's rules. Uh, and they weren't aware that we had done anything or that it had been removed, but I could not find it for the life Yeah, and of I've me. had that issue with Facebook, too. I think we've talked about that at yeah. times. Like, I know, like, you've made posts, and I've been tagged in them, and I, I will go read the comments and stuff, and then all of a sudden, I can't find the posts anymore. Like, where did that go? Yeah. Why is that not in my feed? And I try to, you know, I try to do the things you're supposed to do with a like or an interact with mm-hmm. the post so that it keeps it kind of relevant in my feed, so... I've had some Facebook issues. Yeah. For some reason, I never remember to save or bookmark or I like once in a while I do. And then most time I don't. So uh, we, we lost some things. I'm sure what they had to say was beautiful about sponsorship. (laughs) Think of the most beautiful thing you can think about sponsorship. And that is what our listeners had to say about it for sure. Um, On the other place we put it on Facebook though, uh, Maximilian said, I used to tell people that they had a favorite drug dealer, someone who showed them how to use. So if they wanted to stay clean, they needed a hope dealer, AKA a sponsor, something to that effect. I thought that was kind of interesting. Cause I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with that, even though it's a little, I don't want to say it's a little ridiculous, but it's a little strange to, you know, compare it to, Oh, when you were using, but yeah, somebody had to show me the ropes. I didn't just pick up a, a you know a needle at Safeway and buy a pack of them and say, you know what? I bet I can figure out how to squirt some water on this spoon with it. And like we didn't have the internet really when right. I was doing somebody that and learning that. Yeah, so I needed somebody to show me the ropes. I couldn't. Is, are there even videos? I hope there's not fucking do-it-yourself videos of this show <laughs> yeah. on YouTube. I'm scared now. I, I haven't looked. <laughs> But yeah, we needed somebody to guide us and mentor us, even in terrible things. Uh, 
So why wouldn't that apply to us now? Right. And then if you go over on Twitter, um, ACOA, ACOA Tom said, I think step five specifically calls for admitting to another human being because we'd, we're, we'd be tempted to admit it to the dog or the plants. It takes a relationship with a sponsor to help us make it to step 12 and the spiritual awakening that is waiting. It's a beautiful cycle of love. I uh, wasn't completely sure what he was going yeah. for there, but I, I think the inclusion of another person and maybe that love in the sense of acceptance for the first time that we feel from sharing our souls with somebody and they don't like deny us or whatever. I think that was my big fear for a lot of my life was that I was going to bare my soul to someone and they were going to know who I really was. And then they were just going to reject the shit out of me for being that. Yeah. And so I think that's what he was talking about. I hope maybe, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth. Um, and then David said, always make sure your sponsor has a sponsor. Make sure they're working the program. Make sure you can identify with them. I think they're all pretty key points. Ah, I, my, my idea of whether my sponsor needs to have a sponsor anymore is changing. Not that I don't think they, they don't, I think they need to be in recovery and learning and, and still open-minded and growing I don't know. I'm I'm getting a little iffy on the sponsorship thing now. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, so one of the things I get my experience with sponsors is that at the time that they were sponsoring me, they had all those things, but they don't have those things now in their life 15 years later. Hmm. You know, my first sponsor that I shared my first fifth step with used, you know, right. So he, when I shared that fifth step with him, he had all these <laughs> values and principles and all these things that I admired, but probably not since. <laughs> so, you know, right. so I don't know. I don't know why that's that relevant. I guess if you're going to trust in the process, I think for me, the, the process of having a sponsor and sharing this stuff with them and all that is really, um, about me getting to be okay with me, not necessarily about me trusting this other person. I guess I think a lot of our, 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 you know, hardcore holding on to everyone needs a sponsor, this, that, and the other. And I'm not disagreeing with that idea. Like, I think if I'm my own sponsor, I, I'm in trouble. Right. I do think that. Right. So it's not like I want to say, Oh, I have the answers. I just, I think we fall into this belief kind of like we talked about with Daniel a little bit where we tend to believe we have the only right way, right? Maybe NA was the only right way that worked for me, but I don't think it's the only way. And we can say, Hey, everybody that goes out, you know, I end up seeing most of them come back here if they ever make it back. That's a little biased because the ones who don't ever use again or don't have problems with their using don't come back. Yeah, they don't need to come back. Right. <laughs> like, so I, I do know people who have left 12 step programs and yeah, they just use in a way and they're still on my Facebook feed and living happy 15 years later. Like, I, I mean, am I still waiting for the ball to drop on them? I don't, I doubt it. Like right. it doesn't seem like it at this point. Yeah. And I can say, like say my first sponsor that left, I still, keep in touch with him his life's not a complete train wreck of a disaster right you know? 
right <laughs> you know but he's not in na anymore and then definitely there was a time where his life was a complete train wreck disaster because of using and he came to na and got some years of recovery and got some stability in his life and went back to using and didn't come back here you know and found some other i don't know what his process was for getting to where he is now but it's just interesting. So, yeah, I don't want to say that your sponsor shouldn't have a sponsor. I, I just think the important part of that is that we're teachable and we have teachers available. Yeah, and I don't think we talked about this in our sponsorship episode, but I think I noticed it. We talked about it both in the in the pre in the lead up to that episode is in a lot of the AAs I read, it made it seem like sponsors were just for new people. Like, and mm-hmm. then old timers didn't have sponsors. And when I talked to someone who was familiar with AA, they actually said, yeah, I think when you've been around a while, you don't really have a sponsor anymore by name. Now, this is just one person's limited experience take with that. I can't say that that's 100% true. Right. I'm speaking for a fellowship that I don't even go to. Um, <laughs> oh, fuck it. Let's be clear. You know, the ideas would be that, you know, if I have a regular meeting that I attend and a regular support group or a regular, you know, uh, foundation of people in my network that are other people that are in recovery. Do I need a a sponsor per se? Right. Right. As long as I I still have powers, you know, greater than me or powers outside of myself that I'm accountable to, or or almost some of those principles Daniel talked about, you know, if I'm accountable to these people, if I'm open-minded suggestions, if I'm keeping in touch and, and being open with them about what's going on in my life, do I really need that quote unquote sponsor label on someone? And, and I think that's where we in NA I'm, I'm, and I'm going to include myself not that I believe it, but I will, you know, I'm part of our full too. <laughs> if somebody said they didn't have a sponsor, or that their sponsor didn't have a sponsor and they didn't give a fuck. I'd judge them because I would assume that that meant their ego was such so big that they didn't need anybody to tell them anything anymore. They had already figured it all out. They had all the answers when that really doesn't necessarily have to be true. It could just be that, look, I use these six guys in my life. I run shit past them. They all help me with stuff like super teachable because I obviously don't have the fucking answers but I just don't have a sponsor in name, right? Like it's not one person that I go to. Right. That's not necessarily a terrible thing. It sounds like you're in a great spot recovering. <laughs> right. Like, right. Or I'm just on a doing 10, 11, 12 for a while in my life. I'm, I'm in this process, you know, yeah, I, have that's really group, I have a service commitment, you know, I'm doing these other things as, as long as you're doing those other things. I mean, now if that starts to sort of wind backwards where like, I don't have a service commitment and I don't really have a home group and I'm not really doing these things and I don't have a sponsor, then it sounds bad. <laughs> right. Right. We only had to answer that. What was that faster scale or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm hoarding money and lying to people about it. I'm yeah. like, I, I want to do that every day. Right. Uh, and then the, the last comment on our Twitter was uh, Anna anonymous said, Brutal honesty with her sponsor was what helped. She can't allow herself to hold anything back for fear of shame or embarrassment or anything. She said she's sometimes discerning in meetings about what she can share, depending on who's in the room. But with her sponsor, she doesn't want to have that luxury. And that's been one of the most beneficial things. And I think, you know, all the stuff Daniel talked about that smart recovery does is all stuff that I found in our program. Thank God, because it was all very useful, but the elimination of shame, 
right? That was one of those things I found, uh, not elimination, but the process to deal with a whole lot of it that I had and not carry it like I used to. And I think that's what she's referring to is the ability to really talk about some of that shit that we were taking to the graves before we got here. Like nobody was ever going to know this embarrassing, awful part of my life. And then we get to talk about it and not have it rule us anymore. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, I forget how he described it, but he, he talked about that insane thinking that we have, you know, and, mm-hmm. and like, I always call that my addiction. I don't know. I forget what he called it. The, the absolute statements uh, when it was dibs. Oh yeah. So that line of thinking, all I could think is, yeah, that's what I, I always just call my addiction. Like all the, you know, things that I say that totally aren't true that I'll tell myself. Um, I think some of these shameful things that I have are exactly like that. They're irrational thoughts that I tell myself, you know, like, oh, this is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. And it feels that way inside of my head. But then when I say it out loud, it's like, it's really not that bad compared to like a Jeffrey Dahmer who fucking rapes people and eats their hearts, you know, like, like right. is that really the worst thing in the world that I stole drugs from my mother? You know, like, is that really? <laughs> no, I get you. I, and I've seen the, the actual thing he's talking about in some therapy workbooks where it's like, you know, you list, Oh, you say the core belief is I'm a failure. Uh, well, did you, have you done anything that didn't fail? Well, yeah, I made a fucking peanut butter and jelly sandwich yesterday for lunch and I ate right. it, right? Like, we start to see that it's just not a true statement anymore. And uh, another acronym they use a lot of times is ANTS for automatic negative thoughts. Like, a lot of us just tend to have that snap negative thought about everything. And I would say I am definitely one of those people that always has a negative right. thought first. Like, it's always about how the world's out to get me or about how poor me or like, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Anything that happens. Whatever's happening to me is the worst. Yes. Nobody has this bad. Everything. And, and even the ways I just think about things, my therapist loves to point it out. She's like, there you go again, talking about how everything's bad. She's like, maybe it just is. Why does it have to be so terrible? Um, But that was mostly all we had. We're, we're, you know, as always, we share our memes uh, now on Facebook, like we do on Instagram. So there's just all kind of brutal and savage, awful pictures uh, <laughs> that are supposed to be funny in some way, shape or form. Um, hopefully you don't get too offended by them. I'm trying to find more groups to share them in because they're always fun to, to laugh at for me. Um, and then we, we I did want to mention a friend of mine, Stephanie, a different Stephanie. Weird word. It's an episode of Stephanie's. Um, did our logo for us and she does graphic design. And so she did the, the new, did you, I'm sure you saw it. We didn't talk about it. Yeah. I fucking love it. It's beautiful. The puzzle piece and the, the Maryland flag in it, which is, uh, absolutely awesome looking right now. And then, you know, she is supposedly working on doctoring up some other stuff for us to use in other places. And I, I just incredibly thankful to her for doing that. I think that she's done is awesome. Yeah, it's beautiful looking. I, I was so excited. She actually wants to like switch it up a little bit and go a different direction. And I'm like, <laughs> I already put it everywhere because it's great. <laughs> um, but no, I, I can't wait. I think she, uh, I just want to be able to plug her graphic design, you know, 
business, I guess. I don't, I don't even know if she has a business just yet, yeah. but she's kind of getting into it. And, and apparently, from what I've seen, it's really, really good. So yeah, we got to make some bumper stickers and sweaters and hats. Fuck yeah, sweaters, that's what I'm, sweaters, I know. Sweaters. I'm ready to ask her if she knows how to like fucking do websites and shit because I'm just tired of <laughs> technology is getting to be too much. I spent a lot of time. Like, God, if I ever go back to work, I'll never be able to keep up with this shit. <laughs> um, Maybe if we get over 150 regular listeners, we get a production person. A production, <laughs> yeah, we'll hire, a, we'll hire an assistant. We'll hire him as an intern. That means you don't have to pay him. Maybe we can get an audio intern from a college or something. No, I don't anyway uh yeah so stephanie thank you and they got all kinds of interns (laughs) there you go uh thank you for that and and i can't wait to you know put your name of your your entrepreneurship out there as soon as we uh know some more about all that um beyond that i don't have anything left to talk about it's late at night on a fucking saturday i'm ready to go to bed and yeah me too awesome so everybody stay safe out there i will hate billy tomorrow when we're trying to edit all this uh but stay safe out there and we'll talk to you again next week if you enjoyed this podcast please feel free to share it with people you think might benefit from the conversation look us up on facebook twitter and instagram to join the conversation also and share your ideas with us we'd love to hear it